This is your home for St. Cloud State Hockey, keeping you up to date on the NCHC. Women's WCHA. Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies. The National Hockey League. Kaprizov in for a chance to win it. He scores! Thrill the thrill is for real! Welcome to the NHL, a game winner. And everything from the state of hockey. Cloud Cathedral is now 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title. Welcome to the Huskies Warming House Podcast Den. to episode number 85 here on the Huskies Warming House podcast. I'm Noah Grant, joined alongside my co-host and Nick Max. And Nick, I just noticed something as we started the show. I think this is the first time that you and I have not worn hats of any sort on the show together. It's kind of a, is this a milestone? Have we made it? Have we arrived? I don't know if that's a milestone, but you're that we're, we're just trying to look, you know, better for the people that are watching. I don't know, something like that. I have no idea, man. Um, but it, that's, it's interesting. We've been through this so many times yet i guess we were just trying to you know cover our craniums for so very long yeah I don't know. you know yeah. i i'm surprised that viewers even look at the show i mean when they see our faces uh the fact that our cameras are still intact uh is kind of incredible but, but hopefully your ears are intact we've got a bit of an interesting show for you this week i think to say the least a very short uh huskies illustrated weekly roundup for you uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some women's hockey uh, a potential uh debut that just happened uh not so long ago for a st cloud state hockey alum and then the tough part of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the ongoings uh, in the professional hockey world the past week, not just uh, the Chicago Blackhawks uh, investigation, but a multitude of things going on. Uh, it's uh, it's a bit of a discretionary discussion, um, important for listeners to uh, be aware of some of those things that they will contain. We'll obviously let listeners know about those moments again as they arise. And then we're going to have some fun. The extra ice session, uh, it is Halloween today. So uh, if you're listening to this when the show comes out on Sunday, so we're going to talk a little bit about Halloween, some scary movies and other shenanigans of that sort. Nick, why don't we get into it with Center Ice View News and Notes and the Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup. Center Ice View News and Notes. Center Ice View provides you with the best coverage of St. Cloud State Huskies hockey from game notes, recaps, photos, and more. Go to centericeview.com. as you mentioned, Noah, uh, men's hockey off this week, but it was the women's that were continuing their regular season uh, battles in the WCHA uh, going up against uh, a very good Ohio State team. Now, Friday's action, a little bit of a slow start for the women. Otherwise, it was actually a pretty good game for the Huskies, although they would lose 5-2. to two. They did trail 3-0 into the second period, but they did get back-to-back goals of Emma Gentry and Clara Himmel-Revel to inch within one. However, Ohio State would respond with a separation goal two minutes later. Again, that two-goal lead in the hockey, they say it could be the backbreaker, especially if they're climbing in uh, to a one-goal um, uh, cushion there, but unfortunately unable to catch uh, the Buckeyes there. Taylor Lynn, Mackenzie Bourgeret, McKenna Westwell, and Allie Cornelius 
all tallied assists in this hockey game. Uh, super senior netminder Emma Paluzny stopping at 35 of 40 shots also in that loss. And again, Emma Paluzny uh, continuing to rack up saves in her Husky career. I know that she always gives that uh, team a chance to win. And man, she faces a ton of shots and usually, again, keeps most of them out of the net. Um, on Saturday, again, yesterday for the Huskies, their teams met again in the rubber match again in Ohio. Uh, this one, not so close, unfortunately, Noah. Uh, uh, Ganina Newland coming off of injury, the only goal scorer in this hockey game, and it was a seven-goal um, uh, tally for the Buckeyes in the second period. This was a 10-1 to loss, uh, so a pretty tough outing there again on Saturday uh, for the uh, the women who, again, unfortunately, only able to come up with a win um, on the road. Uh, so have to wait, uh, go back to the drawing board and get some things uh, tuned up, uh, but no question again for, for the women's there. Uh, this one will sting a little bit. Uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, again, uh, you know, as we mentioned before, the men's hockey, uh, this is their bye week and probably the best time to get some. They're nursing some injuries again in the lineup, so it probably couldn't have happened at a better time. And next weekend, they will be traveling to uh, Colorado to face uh, uh, Colorado College and the, the uh, Tigers there, first time at Ed Robeson Arena to open up NCHC uh, conference play. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that that's... I don't know what you say. It's just, it's, it, we're getting ready for the actual yeah. test, right? And then the, the women's team uh, will go down to Mankato to visit the Mavericks there next weekend as well. Yeah, quick clarification there. Uh, they'll actually welcome Mankato, the women's team. They'll be at the Herbert National Hockey Center. They will. But I, do I apologize. But I wrote that segment for you, and I don't write so well sometimes. I don't speak so well sometimes, Nick. So I don't blame you. It's understandable. Uh, it's not Mr. Maxson's fault for once. Caleb Peabody, if you're listening for once, it's not Nick's fault, but put it on his tab anyway. Anyway, speak, speaking of things and keeping tabs, uh, we're already actually at our last topic here for the Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup. Uh, news around the NHL, we're going to discuss the largest headlines, of course, uh, in the main portion of the show. Uh, but in signing news, uh, a couple of signings here. Uh, Vegas, they inked 24-year-old defenseman Zach Whitecloud. He got a six-year, $16.5 million extension after finishing his career with Bemidji State and signing with Vegas back in 2018. Kind of a sneaky, good little signing, I think, for Vegas. A good cost-effective signing, getting the prime years of a potential player there. Uh, Toronto, they completed their big one, uh, kind of their pivotal signing that a lot of people had on the docket after tying up essentially half of their salary cap in four players and change. Uh, defenseman Mike Riley, eight years, $7.5 million annually. I, a fairly hefty price tag. I think he's a defenseman that's worth it, but we'll have to see how that contract ages out as he moves forward there. Then finally, New York Islanders forward Ross Johnson. He nabbed a four-year extension worth just over a million dollars annually. Uh, another cost-effective signing out on the island there. Uh, Nick, I kind of see you perking up here. I do want to ask really quick, uh, the Mike Riley signing, overpay or did Toronto nail it on this one? Overpaid, okay. um, I think, for Mike Riley. Now, uh, the term also scares me a little bit, too, um, yeah. at least for Toronto. I think, you know, first of all, we, we know that this is a pivotal year for Toronto. There's no question about it. Um, you know, this could look either really, really good or, matter of fact, this could be a signing where Mike Riley may not actually carry most of the salary in Toronto. This may be a contract where um, if the Toronto Maple Leafs either, A, don't even make the postseason or, again, can't make it past the first round. There will be some pretty big changes up uh, north of the border in Toronto. And uh, you got to wonder what some of those big signings again, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, Austin Matthews, uh, you know, will some of these big players, the big salaries, uh, well, they have to be moved. Well, at some point now with seven and a half million dollars for Mike Riley, something's got to give. Uh, you kind of wonder what Kyle Dubas has up his sleeves and uh, uh, we'll definitely be here to cover for you all as uh, things unfold here over the course of this season and more importantly into the next off season. 
Yeah, a lot of big names uh, in our weekly roundup this week and it actually continues into that injury buck here. Four players with injury news, some more information on some of these guys here. Uh, Tampa Bay's Nikita Kucherov, the big one, he's expected to miss eight to 10 weeks after his lower body surgery. Uh, Los Angeles Kings defenseman Drew Doughty, uh, he'll miss eight weeks after that knee-on-knee hit by Dallas's Yanni Hockenpah. That was a, that was kind of a nasty uh, hit. That if was you got a, a nasty chance. hit. Yeah, um, New Jersey's Jack Hughes, uh, he's going to be reevaluated in about five weeks' time for his dislocated shoulder. He met with medical professionals earlier this week, just got that information on Saturday. And Washington's TJ Oshie, uh, this is going to hurt me in fantasy here, Nick. He's going to be week-to-week with a lower body injury. Once again, welcome in to episode number 85, Noah Grant, alongside my co-host and Nick Max. And Nick, it's a pleasure to welcome you into the show. It's a pleasure to welcome you uh, back at home, or I'm back at home, I should say. Uh, nice to be back with the family and back in the old studio, as one would say. Not the old, old studio, but close enough. Uh, we didn't have a trivia question this week, so I'm going to throw that out there right now. But Nick, how has your week been? Uh, have you been enjoying your time? And uh, have you been watching... Uh, some hockey not related to the Huskies or have you been away from the hockey world for a while? Uh, no, watching the wild uh, and Husky fans may, uh, may grip on me. I was actually in Mariucci arena last night uh, cheering okay. on Notre, Notre Dame uh, with the golfers. And uh, I, I didn't think the, uh, the Irish could pull it off. Um, golfers actually started really, really sloppy. Uh, geez, Huskies have never done that before. Have they? It's sloppy first period <laughs> start. Um, but uh, very discombobulated Notre Dame, uh, generated most of the offense the first period, although they had really still a hard time getting into some quality scoring chances um, after some offensive pressure. Second period came, and uh, let's just say the game flip-flopped. Uh, yeah. Gophers finally settled down. They uh, got back into the structure. They started just trying to force things throughout the blue line. They finally got pucks deep, finally stretched and pushed back Notre Dame defense. Um, first goal off a wraparound was uh, the goaltender not sealing the post, so that was kind of a soft one. Uh, but then the Gophers, uh, after they go up two rip, really kind of took control in the third yeah. period. So Spe- speaking uh, of speaking of two rip, Bryce Brodzinski with a cannon. That was a really nice shot to yeah. that uh, two nothing. I wanted to ask, and the reason that uh, I have any knowledge of this is my parents are actually Golden Gopher fans, so they were watching the game last night uh, on Big Ten. Uh, Nick, did you feel like that was a game that was uh, somewhat poorly officiated? It would kind of seem like a lot of clutch and grab last night. That uh, I-, I don't know, but. So, you know, you have crews, right, just just in the NHL, the NFL, mm-hmm. NBA that just kind of have their things that they call and also some things that kind of let go, right? And it seemed like that officiating crew was just letting them play for the most part. Um, you know, and even so that the tripping call that was called the third, um, I actually didn't like that call. Um, I think they actually kind of lost his edge. But when the yeah. six there, referee's arm is going to go up. Um, there was a couple of you could saw soft calls then they were more makeups than anything for some maybe non-calls but yeah a lot of a lot of holds out of hooks and uh they were not uh, they were letting them play yeah of course uh we're recording this on saturday night so the gophers actually just underway uh it's about 5 30 here uh local time central time here so they're on their second night against Notre Dame. So we're talking about Friday night's action there. Nick, before we go over to some women's hockey thoughts, uh, the other team that's on the docket that we're paying attention to, of course, the Minnesota Wild, who had a really tough night in Seattle last night. Um, uh, but a particular uh, St. Cloud State Husky hockey alum uh, making his debut. Yeah, John Lazak, you know, again, part of, uh, you know, sort of that, you know, number one team that never lost a game at home. Uh, John Lazak, again, a great defenseman, good defensive defenseman. 
Uh, the, the scouting report would even tell you uh, with St. Cloud that his biggest weakness was uh, he's not the most fleet of foot. And uh, let's just say that for the, even the casual hockey fan, uh, I think that was uh, definitely hurt him a bit. Uh, he got his first game. In fact, he was benched for the last latter half of the third period. He didn't see a shift. Um, and that lasts about 10 to 12 minutes there. Uh, so definitely not the best performance, but that's a tough spot. You know, I think he was yeah. originally called up um, as COVID insurance. Again, as Matt Zuccarello, uh, and I'm trying to remember who the, uh, the other wild player is that's on COVID protocol, excuse me, for not remembering. But, uh, you know, that was the original then. There was word that Goligoski may have been injured as well as Dmitry Kulikov. So he gets kind of pushed into a situation where, um, you know, I'm not sure if you're expecting to play, but, you know, they had to dress Jordy Ben, who has made his regular season debut, and then John Lazat uh, again. So it was a tough, it was a tough game defensively in the game with uh, Hackstall's teams. Again, as he did in North Dakota, they were suffocating in the four check. They finished checks. They were below the goal line. It was tough. And for, for John, uh, not the greatest NHL debut, but also not the best spot for him to be in. I, I don't think that, you know, in the, you know, if you had the choice that the pairing that he would have been on would have been the same that, you know, he was with, but at the end of the day, um, you know, congratulations to Jock for getting that, you know, chance to yeah. shoot up an NHL sweater. That's still one game more than I have ever gotten. So uh, congrats to him, but um, definitely think there's going to be, uh, you know, probably, uh, well, let's just say Kalen Addison up. And uh, uh, that's no surprise that they made the switch there for someone that's a little bit more um, onto the skating side, a little bit more offensively driven as well. Yeah, it was fun to see uh, Jacob Benson, also a uh, former Huskies hockey forward, uh, his Twitter uh, profile or picture, I should say, had a, um, some Red River High School days way back in the day back there in Grand Forks. Some fun pictures there as well, too. Rem Pitlick is the other one that you were thinking of on that COVID protocol yep. list as well. So um, I, if I can sit here in silence, which is very rare, I can at least uh, do some work while I'm sitting here waiting. So I got that one up for you. <laughs> um, yeah, the Minnesota Wild, uh, kind of a topsy-turvy week for them. and. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think the COVID injury bug certainly certainly doesn't help things, but uh, it's been a weird week for Minnesota. Um, and I think that one of the things that you have to pay attention to with this group as they move forward is kind of just, you know, blocking out the surrounding noise a little bit. I think it's the first time in a while that we've heard around a Minnesota wild team, you know, the worries about Kirill Kaprizov, the worries about, you know, the consistency piece. Um, I think a couple of fans already starting to hit the panic button and it's important to just kind of take a deep breath and take a reset here. I don't think that we're in the turmoil stage of the up and down swoons that we saw the Minnesota wild teams of years past quite yet. I mean, I think they, no. they, they over exceeded expectations a little bit last year, this Minnesota group has a lot of capabilities. They have the pieces to, I don't want to say go deep, but they have the pieces to at least contend for a playoff spot. If anything, um, we're young, it's a young season. It's a group that's trying to figure, figure out their way. You've got a lot of new pieces that have entered a couple of pieces that left last year. You have the COVID injury bug on top of that. There's a lot of moving parts here. Um, I think that we really get our first chance to accurately evaluate this team after maybe about game 16, 17, maybe even game 20, where you really get to look at the trends of this group so far and where they're going to shake out the lineup. Uh, in my personal opinion, I think they're still an exciting team to watch. Um, but like you mentioned, congratulations to John Lazat on his opportunity uh, getting to the National Hockey League here, Nick. Um, I do want to move over quickly to some women's hockey news. Uh, women's hockey, like you mentioned, you fought pretty valiantly on Friday night, clawing back to make that game a one-goal hockey game halfway through. Just weren't able uh, uh, to able to eke out the win in that 5-2 to two loss. And then today, I mean, it was 2-1 to one after period number one, and then it was just a difficult, difficult second period, and then a single goal in period number three for that 10-1 to one loss. The underlying statistics, kind of going back to what we saw in St. Cloud State teams, women's hockey teams of years past, 
the shot chart started to look a little lopsided for the first time this year, I would say. I mean, the Wisconsin series a little bit too, but you're playing a high-caliber opponent. This Ohio State team, they're a good hockey team. They they have a chance to really contend for a national championship this year. Uh, nonetheless, Emma Paluzny uh, has the serious potential to break that saves record for St. Cloud State women's hockey. She's his third all-time on that list right now. Uh, Nick, this women's hockey group, a little bit of resiliency, not able to put together the full 60 minutes on Friday night. Steve McDonald echoed that sentiment. Not the showing that we had expected on Saturday. Um we talked about it with this group, that consistency of even if you lose a game on Friday and not to get your doors blown off on Saturday, uh, what is the secret to going back to the drawing board for this group as they move on to Mankato next weekend? I think you got to go between the years, honestly. I don't think this is on the whiteboard for this group. Um, you know, it, I think this is this is the defining moment for this season right yep. here, right now. I really do, Noah. Um you know, you know, first of all, you got to tip your cap to Ohio State. Like you mentioned, they're a good hockey team. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for the Huskies, you know, uh, you know, Ohio State proved just how good they were. Now, for the women's team, you you know, we, we talk about this in sports a lot. And don't get me wrong. This is so easier, much said easier than done. You have to have short-term memory. Mm-hmm. And more so, you have to have you know, sort of that consistent belief system, right? You have to be able to forget whether you win or you lose. And you always have to have, you can't waver the fact that you have to believe that you are a, a good player. You're on a good team and you believe in the structure and the way you play. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. No question after a result, like it was here on Saturday, but that's going to be, this is the test for the squad. You can't let this hang over your heads. Um, you have to understand that it was a tough weekend. Fine, but learn from it and move on from it. Um, you know, I think this is, you know, again, you know, you, I guess the, the fear that I have, and I think in years past is, you know, you sort of, you know, look at the score, which again, tells you a little bit of what happened. Doesn't tell you everything. Right. Um, but, you know, it's easy to look at those surface numbers and go, we're so far away from being a good team. And you tend to sort of, you know, kind of push yourself down in your own rabbit hole per se. Right. Yeah. Uh, you just can't do that. Right. You have to, you know, be able to look down, you know, get a white, wipe the mud off the cleats or however you want to phrase it. And you got to look up. And, you know, that rear view mirror, smash it, break it. You got to continue to look forward. And again, it's not easy, uh, but you got to refocus. You got to forget it. And you got to look forward to Mankato um, for a chance to, you know, get back to a, a more positive outcome um, and a little bit more positive performance. Yeah, I think the piece that you go back to is uh, just establishing that floor check a little bit too, and just feeling like you have a little bit more control over the game on both ends of the ice. Uh, as you know so well, Nick, as if you're an offensive player, especially, or you're a goal scorer, and it feels like you can't get out of your own zone, it feels like you're not even having the opportunity to try to create or generate on the opposite side of that center ice line. Uh, it, 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 it Not only is it a long night, it feels like a frustrating night too on top of that. Um, yeah. Obviously, giving up 10 goals doesn't matter what league you're in is a difficult proposition but hopefully it adds some fuel to the fire we've seen this husky team in years past when they do happen to have uh, a stinker of a game uh, so to speak on the scoreboard they've responded very well especially they get to come back at home they get to play a team that they have the ability to uh, um, not only handle but it's also going to be a good measuring stick for where they are uh, in in the wcha pushing for that potentially number four spot in the standings there so far i think is a good benchmark to kind of shoot for uh this group again i, I think they're uh two five and two or two five and one is where they're at right now in the record and uh 
they played uh, two of the best teams, not only uh, in the WCHA, but in all of the country in Wisconsin and Ohio State. So definitely a chance to kind of right the ship as far as the, the getting closer to 500 is concerned, but also, like you mentioned, that mental game between the ears. So uh, best of luck to the Huskies women's hockey team. Excited to see them back on home ice. And uh, the men's team back in action, NCHC hockey. Uh, be there, watch it, figure it out. Follow some Huskies hockey. We'll have it all for you here, as always. Nick, we're going to turn over to that portion of the show that time. Uh, we're going to turn over to uh, pretty much set the stage for our listeners. A really difficult week uh, in professional hockey and the hockey world in general. I think as we go back, uh, trying to compile and take in all this information about the Chicago Blackhawks, about the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins. Of course, we have the UHL fallout that's still kind of working itself out, as well as, uh, you know, of course, uh, a piece coming out of Columbus that we're going to touch on as well. Uh, and kind of an interesting portion of this show. This is a lot of information for our listeners and our viewers to digest. So we want to make sure we get it accurate as we could. So we actually have put together a little segment together. Um, again, we remind you uh, some uh, viewer and listener discretion. Uh, the stories uh, contain some pretty graphic depictions, uh, some relating to sexual assault. So important uh, to keep that in mind. And without further ado, we're going to kick it over to our recap of the last week in the world of hockey. like to remind you that these stories contain graphic depictions and accounts of sexual assault. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Before this week, Jalen Smerick, the black hockey player who was racially taunted in the UHL, mutually terminated his contract with his team HC Donbass in mid-November. Yes, a player who was the victim of racial prejudice suffered more consequences than his attacker, who had a 13-game ban with the option to buy his way into shortening it into a three-game ban. Six days ago, the Chicago Blackhawks became the first team in NHL history to lose their first six games without leading at any point during their first 360-plus minutes of play in the regular season. In any other season, this would have been the dominating headline in Chicago. Four days ago at Nationwide Arena in Ohio, Columbus netminder Elvis Merzlikens got his fourth start of the season and fourth win, standing tall by stopping 31 of 32 shots against the Dallas Stars. Hours earlier, his goalie mask shimmered with paintings of a close friend on the molded plastic as he walked down the tunnel on Monday, where a fan in a Dallas Stars jersey then taunted him about the death of fellow Latvia netminder and teammate Matisse Kivlenix, who was inadvertently killed when a fireworks accident caused a mortar to explode in his chest. He was 24. Less than 12 hours later, Chicago Stan Bowman stepped down as general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks, along with vice president of hockey operations, Al McIsaac. To the non-adept hockey fan, many would believe that the move corresponded to the Hawks' abhorrent start to the season. But for those in the hockey world and the legal world, an independent investigation and subsequent report by Jenner and Block LLC prompted the move. Bowman also resigned as general manager of the 2022 U.S. Olympic men's hockey team. On Wednesday, hockey fans pieced through the findings of the Jenner and Block report. Brad Aldrich, a video coach in Chicago back in 2010, had just helped propel the team to their first Stanley Cup final since 1992, which they would win 17 days later. Days prior, an unnamed 20-year-old black ace was, quote, invited to Aldrich's apartment, who provided him with dinner and drinks, told him he had the power to get John Doe onto the Blackhawks roster and turned on pornography. John Doe stated that Aldrich threatened John Doe by telling John Doe that he needed to act like he enjoyed the sexual encounter or John Doe would never play in the NHL or walk again, forcibly performed oral sex on John Doe, masturbated on John Doe's back, and then threatened John Doe again 
before John Doe was able to escape Aldrich's apartment. The unnamed player then confided in another coach, who then reported the incident to proper executives. The team, including Stan Bowman, assistant executive Kevin Sheveldayoff, and its head coach John Quinville, responded by citing that the Stanley Cup final was more important than the issue, and the bad publicity and distraction would be too damaging for the team. As Aldrich in Chicago won the Stanley Cup and paraded less than three weeks later, the coach groped an intern before being released by the organization. Months later, he would be released by Miami, Ohio for an incident during a summer development camp with the team. And in 2013, Aldrich would serve nine months in prison and five years of probation for sexually assaulting a 16-year-old at a Houghton, Michigan high school. Almost 11 years from the incident in 2010, John Doe became Kyle Beach. Kyle would later join reporter Rick Westhead this week on TSN, who provided one of the most incredibly heart-wrenching interviews in hockey history. Amidst this, the NHL fined Chicago $2 million for policy violations. Meanwhile, current Chicago captain Jonathan Taves said, quote, to me, Stan Bowman and Al McIsaac make any argument you want. They're not directly complicit in the activities that have happened, regardless of mistakes that may have been made. For someone like Stan, who has done so much for the Blackhawks and Al as well, to lose everything they care about in their livelihoods, I have a lot of respect for them as people. They're good people." End quote. On Thursday, John Quinville, who coached on Wednesday night for a red-hot Florida Panthers squad, resigned in the wake of the scandal. Just a day later, Kevin Sheveldayoff, now the general manager of the Winnipeg Jets since 2011, was exonerated of any wrongdoing by the league. Months prior, the NHL would not investigate the matter, and the Blackhawks called the claims made by Kyle Beach, quote, meritless and baseless, end quote. In 2011, the NHL Players Association, led by Donald Fair, did not continue investigating the matter. Fair continues to lead the NHLPA as of this Sunday. Leading into the weekend, Chicago Blackhawks owner Rocky Wirtz, who had no knowledge of the issue back in 2010, requested that the Hockey Hall of Fame cross out Aldrich's name on the Stanley Cup with X's. Amidst the chaos, a formal federal lawsuit has now been filed in the case of Pittsburgh Penguins minor league affiliate in Wilkes-Barre Scranton, alleging that former Wilkes-Barre Scranton coach Clark Donatelli molested assistant coach Jared Scald's wife Erin during an outing on a road trip back in 2018. He allegedly made unwanted sexual advances, reached up her shirt and grabbed her breasts, and then later in the back of a car with her husband in the front seat, unaware of what was happening, reached down her pants and touched her vagina, despite her efforts to stop him. They also allege that current Minnesota Wild general manager Bill Guerin, who was general manager for Wilkes-Barre Scranton and assistant GM for the Penguins at that time, asked Jared Scald to keep the reason for Donatelli's termination quiet and that the team punished Scald for reporting the assault and later terminated his position under the guise of pandemic-related staff cuts. Guerin is also the assistant GM for the U.S. Olympic men's hockey team, the same team that Stan Bowman just resigned from. The lawsuit is still active and a judge on September 30th denied the Penguins motion for arbitration instead of a jury trial. Finally, this Saturday at noon, TSN's Rick Westhead tweeted a text from a longtime NHL executive that said, I just don't understand how a little guy like Brad Aldrich can molest a six foot four NHL player. Obviously, it's been a difficult week in the world of hockey. Um, we talked a little bit about the situation in Columbus. We talked a little bit about the fallout of the UHL. We talked a little bit about the Wilkes-Barre Grant Penguins. 
I think the appropriate place that we should start though, Nick is the big one that's been on everybody's minds. And that's been the Chicago Blackhawks, their investigation. Uh, as we kind of mentioned, some of the highlights, uh, um, if you will, from uh, that Jenner and Block report, again, that 107 page report is available for download. I actually downloaded it myself. That's where I got some of the quotes. Um, if anything, I, Nick, I would say our listeners and viewers would be well served um, paging through various portions of that. There's some really good information to follow. Um, and they did a fantastic job with their investigation. Nick, uh, your first initial thoughts uh, on the discussion of the Chicago Blackhawks. Well, first, let's rewind the clocks a little bit. Um, and not 11 years ago, but even about 12 months ago, mm-hmm. when this story really first started to become public, right? <clears throat> I think what's important to just set the tone and uh, it, for this was some information started to come out about it. Again, you know, when these sort of stories break through, right, there's always a bit of hesitation. Um, in terms of, you know, the details, in terms of uh, the credibility of said information, where it's coming from, who is making these claims, that sort of thing. And it's not about, you know, you know, going back in hindsight and what, you know, now versus then. It's, you know, these are very serious matters, right? But more so, how does one digest as a person or, and more importantly, or an organization when some of this information does make its way to in the public eye and how they respond to it. Well, let's not forget that both Joel Quenville and uh, others, uh, both players, current and former on the Blackhawks were asked about some of this information and they denied knowing about it. Um, the Blackhawks also pretty much put it to the side burner, um, claiming they didn't know much about it. Part of the reason why we're encouraging um, our listeners and our viewers to go actually into the general and block report is What's so damning about this report is it completely contradicts the stance um, of the organization and some of the players that had made public statements when this first started to emerge, right? And that's important. The reason why I'm going back to that's important. That shows you, you know, because you can make a connection that says the organization themselves didn't either A, make it a priority, two, wanted to bury it, or three, a combination of both. Um, more importantly, you know, what does this do for the victim who now has named himself as Kyle Beach? I should say one of the victims There's more than one here um, who stepped forward in a very incredibly brave interview yeah. with Rick Westhead. Again, um, I cannot give more credit to Rick Westhead of TSN, who's been spearheading this from day one, who's been really, really good at not only reporting what he can validate because um, he's talked to so many people. But then after this report was published, Noah, I'm going back and essentially everything that has come out from him has been pretty much verified and validated. Um, So a couple of things that stick out to me. One, um, the folks that made public statements, again, about going back a year that said they had never heard about it or this meeting never took place. Well, guess what? It was made very, very clear that a meeting took place. Mm -hmm. And again, the sentiment and what drives and should drive everybody nuts is, right before they say in the cup final and the organization. Now you can make it as organization as Chicago Blackhawks. You can make it as upper management. I don't really care what you make it as, but the folks in positions of power made the decision that winning the Stanley cup was more important than taking care of an issue that was so important that was laid out right in front of them. And they thought that if we go wait for three weeks, um, then we can deal with it then. We obviously know that that's not how these things are supposed to be handled. And even more so, 
the worst part of all this, Noah, is not only was it's how also when it was handled by Chicago, um, there was a mutual separation of mind you legally um, in contractual terms. I want people to understand this. That's usually how these things go. It's not because they don't want to get fired and, you know, part-time work and, you know, workman's comp, it has nothing to do with that. But mostly because none of this was really taken care of, the perpetrator um, goes on to violate and do this multiple more times at different mm-hmm. organizations. So, you know, in, I guess- in, 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 Including the Chicago Blackhawks organization to an intern weeks later, which- Weeks later. And then to an underage person, again, my aim of Ohio, Houghton, Michigan, as we described before. And I'll leave uh, my initial thoughts of this final thing here, Noah, and that is, I guess when I was younger, you know, you're, you're sort of taught that every action that you do or everything you say has consequences beyond yourself. There's a ripple effect, right? That's both the same way with not doing something or not taking the appropriate action, right? And in this case, what Brad Aldrich has done to multiple people is caused them a life lasting memories that, and situations they were brought into that nobody have asked for. And, and you can't really erase. You just can't take that away. And it's something that they're stuck with for the rest of their lives. And I think the, the biggest, the last part about it is many of those had this been taken care of in the proper way uh, would have been possibly prevented we can't obviously say everything would it could have been prevented if if somebody's out there to do something they do it there's granted so many measures of protections in place for people especially at work or at home you kind of wish that you know this would never happen but i would like to think that some of these instances especially within the same organization definitely would have probably been prevented and therefore the damage this person um would have been done would have been less because obviously if, if you know it should have been zero don't get me wrong but uh, at the end of it, if it happens once, uh, you better make sure that it doesn't happen again, especially if it's someone that is in your own organization. You know, the difficult piece about this too is really it goes back and it stems from when you have junior hockey in Canada, when you have Hockey Canada, when you have USA Hockey, the development camps, the development programs, and then you have things designed that are supposed to mitigate this like safe sport, you go back to... Um, the Chico Andretas uh, um, scandal that you have with that piece. You go back to Sheldon Kennedy, right? You go back to Theo Fleury. These are players that at the time when they came out with their stories were, I don't want to say thought as outliers, but they were this separate portion, this new piece of information that it felt like, oh, this was a sporadic piece that you had one or two coaches within the junior ranks that were causing issues. And as we go on, even not only within the game of hockey, but in the world of sports in general, is Larry Nasser, the USA Gymnastics piece. What do you tell? What do you tell your children? What do you tell your six-year-old, your eight-year-old who wants to get into the game of hockey, wants to go to a USA Hockey Development Camp? Don't forget, Aldrich was working in women's hockey for USA Hockey just mere months after he was terminated in his contract uh, from the Chicago Blackhawks. What do you tell somebody who wants to play major junior in Canada and is working their way up to it? And understanding that there is a risk for things like this to happen, because one of the things that stuck out to me, Nick, Rick West had again, his tweet today, how a longtime NHL executive said to him, quote, I just don't understand how a little guy like Brad can molest a six foot four NHL player and talking about the process of grooming. And then you listen to Jonathan Taves comments and Patrick Kane to a lesser extent. And you listen to how they somewhat absolve a lot of what Stan Bowman 
did and the executive department did. This is an issue that goes beyond just a single coach or a handful of bad coaches. This is an issue that stems in, in some respects directly from Gary Bettman to Donald Fear to every executive in the NHL, to every player in the NHL. You listen to Kyle Beach's discussions about how things were said about him in the locker room, yet the players deny that either they didn't know it or they knew it way long after the fact when Kyle Beach, the man who went through this, totally contradicts that statement along with the support of players like Brent Sopel and a lot of other players that have validated that information as well too. It's damning enough to have something like this happen. But not only in the game of hockey, but in, in a lot of sports, as we continue to sit with the good old boys club and sweep issues like this under the rug, at what point does the dam and the levee start to break, Nick? I mean, that's my honest question. At what point do we stop sitting here? And even, again, we don't know what the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton piece is. Bill Guerin, a part of those pieces, we have no idea one way or the other, I guess, I suppose. At what point do we even stop these issues from happening or stop them from going any further? At what point do we make that change? Because, Nick, we've been doing this show for almost 22 months And this has got to be maybe the sixth or seventh discussion we've had of sexual assault, of groping, of things like of that nature. And we keep having the same discussion. When does it change? How does it change? Well, first of all, $2 million fines in the NHL does not make that change. Um, You know, and I know that. And a a friend pointed out to me, and granted, I understand the the fines related to a, a collective bargaining agreement and policy and that sort of thing. If I'm not mistaken, and quote me if I'm wrong, the New Jersey Devils were fined $3 million for their handling of the Ilya Kovalchuk issue. An issue of a contract is fined more is fined more than a case of sexual assault, and a settlement has not been reached with anybody on top of this. Right. I was actually just going to point out that, you know, it, you know, in terms of the contrast. Now, I want to be careful here because I know people like to, you know, look at oranges and what they think are oranges because it's a fine from the NHL, right? The reality is I don't like those comparisons for two reasons. One, uh, you know, again, circumventing, you know, those sort of contracts and making to go to the Arizona Coyotes who were fine and lost draft picks because mm-hmm. essentially the league in a similar way, it's taken the same stance as what the Chicago Black Sox did. I don't want anything to interrupt those two things. We're going to give those teams a competitive edge in the hockey world. So get that out of your mind. Get that out of comparisons. You have the initial fine. Yeah. Is it, is it, is it fair? You mentioned the Arizona Coyotes and I just cut you off again. I'm sorry. Is it fair to make a closer comparison then to the Mitchell Miller situation and the way that that was handled? A little bit. Um, just because again, the NHL, I mean, you're talking about swinging and missing the NHL, they going to go up to the freaking batter's box. Um, you know, in my opinion, you know, and so the way I look at it is this, the NHL, who prides itself in trying to be, you know, this hockey's for everyone, and they did, they're trying to be more incorporating and, you know, again, trying to rid the image, that's all PR BS to me, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, especially when you handle the situation with a fine and that's it. Where was the $2 million fine and then, hey, how about every single person in the league has to go through safe sport training or has to do some sort of sensibility training? or require everybody that's in like, um, you know, direct team, uh, like player involving roles, like a, like a trainer or a doctor, you know, go through training where if you're, you know, in, or, you know, or 
if you're involved in witness sexual assault, how it gets reported, where you almost do do something where, you know, like the voting, like it's got to be a standardized operation, um, you know, and you just force it to happen. They missed this really bad. Yes. Um, because, yeah, the, the fine's one thing, but really uh, it's not, it's nothing. Yeah. Not, not only, not only, not only did they miss this, Nick, the national hockey league, 11 years ago too, the NHL players association, the Chicago Blackhawks, not only, not only did they miss this, they were actively against opening an investigation. And that's yes, the piece that, again, how do you look at not only an NHL player, but anyone's son or daughter and say, here's a sport that you can play. Oh, but by the way, if something's happens to you, keep your mouth shut about it because no one's going to help you. Well, more, you know, and, and that's the bigger damning part is, you know, the players association is supposed to be there for the players. And for them to take the sort of position that, uh, well, I don't want to open this door. It shows you that the good boys club, as we're so actively calling it, um, was completely in control of that. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 can you imagine? I mean, there's no way we can put ourselves into Kyle Beach's shoes, but just imagine this sort of things happen to you. Not only do people in your own organization are a making fun of you, they're telling you to be quiet or, Essentially, the, the, the amount of years, the practices, the pucks you shot, you know, the games you played, all the effort and the sacrifices that only you made, your parents made, maybe even your teammates, you know, driving you back and forth to hockey games and practices and weekend tournaments, right? All that could be going out the window because of something that you were forced to be, be forced on you. Yeah. I just can't fathom that. And then on top of that, you're supposed to have this resource that says, this is for me as a player, something happens. And they're going, Shh, basically, shut the hell up. And then the yeah. league is going, uh, call me again on Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Uh, I'm basically call me Thursday. Um, oh yeah. No, I'm sorry. I forgot. I had a meeting. Can we reach, can we go back this, you know, a week from now? Cause I yeah. got next week really busy. Just really not trying to uh, essentially just work through it. And I, you know, if there's any one thing I will say to our listeners, right. And I think this is the, you know, the call to action that if anything is placed to this is if you see anything, whether it's, you know, at home, at work, um, I'll you know, like talk about it and deal with it right away. And that goes to both sides, right? If I'm in a position of management, um, you know, at my place of business and something's brought out to me, again, if this doesn't show you, it looks so much worse by you just not addressing it and going through the proper channels, then trying to, and then I get it. Uh, I, I've dealt, uh, I'll put it this way. I was involved in the situation where I became aware of information and I would to say this, um, you know, I followed my protocols and, you know, it kept me out of the harm's way, you know, in terms of being a person that was bearing the information because I reported to the proper channels and it was properly dealt with. Right. Whereas when you don't do this, you know, again, it goes back to the victim. Right. You know, you have to have, you know, for everybody. And, you know, you, you asked me the question, no, I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping over the page here. Yep. But when you ask your son or daughter, not just in hockey, but in life. Right you know, you don't want them to walk around in fear with everything they do. Mm-hmm. You have to, and for more part, how does your son or your daughter, not, you know, whether that's six, three years old, because when you, you watch your kids grow, right? You're like, I, I want the world to be around with this. That's safe. Uh, I can't protect them from everything, but something does happen. There's got to be repercussions for the people that impo- impose harm, right? What does this whole story say from why the Blackhawks handle this to how they care about the community, how they care about um, people in general, and especially victims of said violence. 
It says that they don't give two rats asses part of my friendship about anybody. And if you have kids at home and what other that's, and this is acceptable to you. And more importantly, do you feel comfortable whether today go to work or what? And what does this tell them? How that was handled? Hey, guess what? This will happen to you. And guess what? A, your story may never make it out. Two, the people who did this to you are never going to face repercussions. And three, um, you're going to be holding this cloud over your head essentially the rest of your life. That's, that's not, this is not the way our society, you know, needs to handle these types of situations. Yeah. And this is, and you're going to be labeled as the bad guy and think about that piece yeah. of what it takes to come forward as a victim with that information or be an advocate for a victim and come forward that it, with that information. They're difficult discussions to have. Nick, my kind of closing thoughts here. Um, I thought it was intriguing. I read an article, a couple of articles, of course, in the athletic, but talking about uh, essentially the interview uh, with TSN's Rick Westhead that Kyle Beach, who so eloquently did that. I mean, an incredible 25 and a half minutes. If you, if you, if you get a chance to listen to it, definitely uh, I would say grab a couple of tissues and definitely sit in a quiet space and watch. I mean, it, I had to pause it a couple of times. I mean, it, it, it was something else. Um, but it's interesting how the writer from The Athletic noted that the only person and one of the few people to apologize right away was Kyle Beach himself, the victim is right. the one who's apologizing to this piece. And the moment in the interview where he is asked about what he would say to the Houghton, Michigan victim who was 16 years old and his I'm response. Sorry. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it makes it, makes you really um, want to reach through the screen and hug him and punch everybody who has ever been wrong to Kyle beach. It's, it, right. It's it's um, it's unbelievable to watch somebody go through that, and not only to have somebody go through that and show that genuineness, and to have an entire organization, an entire players association, and an entire league turn their back on him for something that he's carried with him for the last eleven years. So I think one of the things I'd like to say, and it's been said plenty of times, but I mean I commend I commend Kyle Beach for what he's done. It takes an incredible step, not only to come forward with what he has, but to persevere through all the doubt and the negativity that has surrounded um, what people called his accusations and allegations um, and called them false, meritless, baseless, and to be able to persevere for not only himself, but for people in that similar situation. And in truth, the game of hockey and everyone around him trying to make this sport in our world a better place. There's it's such a commendable action after such an unspeakable tragedy tragedy. Nick, the other piece that I want to bring in this, we mentioned a little bit about the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins. We mentioned even the little piece about Jalen Smerick leaving his own team, even though he was the, the victim of racial uh, taunts, if you will, even talking about Elvis Merzlikens and, you know, teaching people not to be that Dallas stars fan that makes a comment like that when he's coming out uh, for a hockey game on a Monday night, Nick, that's my closing thought. What is your closing thought? Uh, Again, to telling people to be better in areas more than just sexual assault, not being that Dallas Stars fan that makes those comments, being better in the minor league level where a lot of things probably go under the wayside even more so, um, or or even in leagues like the UHL where things might not be policed as such, uh, and just being better as a person in your own community. Well, I want to re I want to go back just a little bit. First of all, um, when the Blackhawks hired Jenner and Block for this investigation, now mind you, the organization themselves hiring this. Yeah. Initially, my thoughts were, 
this can't really, you know, is, is, are we really going to find out the truth about this? Right. I really do have to commend the job that Jenner and Block did on this. Um, Could you imagine being the law, you know, being that law firm, mind you, I know that they're a very big, powerful law and, you know, law firm in Chicago, but having, you know, before this was all released, because you know that this, there was a meeting before all this released and there it is the full report, right? I imagine going to the Wurtzes who, mind you, in that same report were cleared of wrongdoing, uh, Kevin Shavel day off, um, kind of, I know you could say he was cleared by the commissioner, although I know many folks have their opinions about that. Joel Quenville was not very much so not. And after his conversation with Gary Bedman, he, um, also the, resigned as his head coach. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm glad and I'm, I'm very happy about the job that that law firm did, uh, to get to the bottom of it, to interview over 130 people, um, to, put this whole story together and to give the proper victims in this case, their day of justice, even though that really isn't a justice in the courtroom, you know, there is the people's court too, right? You know, as they talk about um, in society where, you know, again, when these information, these stories first come out, there's always this, you know, backlash of, is this really true? Is this, you know, money hungry? Is this a failed NHL player just trying to get his day? And obviously with this investigation, not the case at all, everything that has come forward yeah. from the victim side has been properly validated. And, and, you- and, and, and carrying that against not only a big organization like the Chicago Blackhawks, but think about what it was like to be Kyle Beach, where you fought so long for an investigation, you get one, but it's an independent investigation hired by the Chicago Blackhawks. And you're sitting on pins and needles waiting. Are they going to be the law firm that says what was said, or will they take the side of the Chicago Blackhawks? Right. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's a hell of a job. That's, and that's a hell of a position for that law firm to be in. And I'm glad that, you know, it sounds like they were free and able to do this completely independently um, to really get to the, the bottom of the truth. And uh, yeah. again, you know, the heart, the truth sometimes is hard, Noah, it can be really, really difficult and um, what, but it's what we do with it. Right. And I think for, as far as my closing thoughts, you know, you mentioned again, Merzlikens, um, you mentioned, um, you know, some other, uh, the UHL situation, um, I know we briefly discussed others, but, you know, it's not that these, the story or now the details come to life. It's now that we know how these things are happening, how they're being improperly dealt with. It's now our turn as a society to take a learning lesson from this and, in, you know, impose change. And again, as you mentioned very eloquently, sports in general, not just the NHL, but I think the sports landscape, I think that, you know, in terms of society, we have to be more on the supportive and encouraging side when it comes to, to victims' advocation. And more so, you know, just as a human being, when these things come out, you know, we have to not be afraid to dig into these and to find the truth. Now, you know, it, it begs me to say this because I know there's, there's going to be some folks that will pop up and say, but not every story that comes out is, you know, ends up being true. That's fine. That may happen, but it's less than 1% of these cases, number one. But number two, the biggest thing about this story is there wasn't even an attempt to validate right. or even look into what these what had come out, right? That's the thing is we need a society that says this is a very serious allegation. We need to look into this, and we need to figure out what's true and what's not. And so – I don't want to commend the Chicago Blackhawks 
for any, you know, for really, but I do have to say for them, I can only imagine that, you know, this, you know, this was a, a day of reckoning and, you know, this is a very nasty wake up call. And, you know, more so, I hope that this example from this team has more than just a ripple effect in terms of the news, but also around the league. I hope it forces and induces change at the NHL level, you know, at, at the master control at the NHL Players Association. And granted, you know, that statement by Donald Fair, put it in a, put it in a paper ball, throw it in the fire pit, light that bitch on fire. That was awful. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry it was. Um, you know, he was one of the few play- people that say sorry, but 11 years later, and unless this comes out, he's not saying sorry at all. So I'm, I, yeah. I, I really can't say much to that. And then to close it all off, you know, again, um, you know, I, I just think that at least for me, you know, as a person looking at this, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard, honestly, it's really hard because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, Kyle Beach's comments, and I, I've had an opportunity to watch the interview a couple of times. It just, there's things that in, in, in you know, when you hear it, they just leave you lost for words and let's, let's work on ourselves, let's work as a group, as human beings in the community and in society and in this country, both U.S. and Canada, to put a stop to this. There's an easy way to do it. That's just doing the right thing and being a good person. It's really all it comes down to. Yeah, you talk about Donald Ferris' comments. I thought Stan Bowman's comments were were not so great either. And Al McCarthy didn't even make a statement, which is, that's telling of a lot of things. And you mentioned, uh, you know, it's not often that us as broadcasters are at a loss for words. And this was one of those moments that I, I think was there. And you mentioned this has to, you hope that this will change things. This has to change things. This has to be one of those moments those milestone moments that have to change things for the better and make things more inclusive and really get hockey back to the way that, that we know it can be. There's so many great things about this game. There's so many awesome things that we see and do and allow people to play and where we come from. We have taken a lot of steps, but things like this pull us back to where we were and we don't want to be. And like you mentioned, for all the people involved, especially like you mentioned, Jenner and Block, the ability um, that they have, and in some ways the Chicago Blackhawks for willing to at least opening this up and and creating a better um, National Hockey League and better game of hockey. Um, There are some good things that will come out of this, but right now we are in that stage where it's a painful moment. It's a painful moment for for a lot of us watching. So um, Nick, I appreciate the discussion and having it with you. It's not an easy discussion. I appreciate our listeners for being able to listen through or watch through because uh, it's a discussion that had to be had, but um, it's not easy as we've mentioned. But speaking of things that are uh, easy peasy, lemon squeezy and and hanging out, we're going to head on to our extra ice session uh, a little bit later than usual. We're going to talk about some Halloween fun, some shenanigans, some uh, some movies and such. So without further ado, uh, let's head on head on over. Episode number 85, the extra ice segment, Nick Maxson joining myself, Noah Grant, Nick, I We've had uh, a lot of fun on this show. Uh, I was thinking back to what we did for Halloween last year. We had a little bit of our favorite candies, favorite movies, things like that. Before we get into our segment, I thought, first of all, let's take a look at this date in NHL history, shall we? October 31st, uh, what has happened around the hockey world, 1981, throwing it back to uh, right before you were born, crazy enough. Uh, (laughs) I 
had to throw at least one of those in there, of course. Uh, the great one, Wayne Gretzky, became the first player in NHL history to have seven hat tricks before his 21st birthday. Um, apparently, his career ended up being all right, from what I remember. Also, does a fantastic job. Him and Paul Bissonette, I would say, uh, uh, is a TNT that they're on. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's been a hoot. If you haven't gotten a chance to check out some of those games, a lot of fun. Uh, speaking of another great, back in 1942, Maurice Richard playing in his first ever NHL game on Halloween for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, wearing number 15 at the time before uh, switching to number nine later. He was first dubbed the Comet before he was the Rocket. Uh, got his first NHL point, which is, was an assist, 36 seconds into his first NHL game. A 3-2 to two win against the Boston Bruins at the Forum. Uh, a couple more dates, two more here for you, Nick. The New York Rangers, uh, they had four. Marcel Dion scoring his 700th goal of his NHL career back in 1987. And in 2003, the Vancouver Canucks, they became the second team in NHL history to score the first goal in each of their first 11 games of the season. Uh, so kind of an interesting milestone. There it was a four to one road win against the Phoenix Coyotes at that time. Last hit, last tidbit here before I bring you in here, Mr. Nick Maxson, what two NHL players have a birthday tomorrow on Halloween that are active right now? Nick Felino, Evgeny Svechnikov, uh, respectively. So congratulations. Happy birthday. Uh, I should say tomorrow, but technically it's today if you're listening. Uh, but nonetheless, Mr. Maxson, uh, I think we should head over to uh, 10 questions. What do you think? Well, actually five questions, but five, <laughs> um, five sounds like more than four. So uh, at, at the end of the day, yeah, only five questions. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll kind of let you bring into this one because, you okay. know, like you mentioned, we, we had some fun discussions last, uh, last year, but uh, a little bit different this year um, and a little bit more, um, what do you call it? Uh, philosophical maybe would yeah. be the right. Yeah. Introspective. Yeah. Uh yeah eh. i don't know i don't know if our brains are, are that powerful i don't know well well speaking of introspective nick uh, i've got my questions in a list but kind of when we talked about a little bit pre-show that i was shocked i think the listeners might be surprised the the question at its base says do you scare easily mr maxson and i was under the impression i guess i, I had the thought that you were you were more fearful of the psychological thriller and from what you've told me uh you scare easily but not psychologically no, it's more not easily. If you catch me off guard, that's pretty much the only way you do it. So, um, so hit him with that Val's order tab, Caleb. You'll get him. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, when I go to a scary movie, you know, it, it's first of all, I have a hard time not picking apart the terrible plot lines and <laughs> um, how you know these grown adults make some very unadult decisions in times of of panic and danger. Um, <laughs> so it, it actually drives me nuts. Um, you know, with that being said, though, uh, yeah, I don't really scare easily in terms of the, the philosophical, the introspective stuff. I've seen enough. I mean, if you look at my face half the time, dude, nothing can out scary from there. Um, <laughs> but, but seriously, and, you know, it, it's hard, honestly, because I think for, you know, when I think of a scary movie, you want to left, you want to you want to leave the movie theater as I don't want to go home because that thing I just saw on screen it was to say it's some monster or whatever the heck it is or some ghoul or yeah anytime anytime you see a balloon after anything, watching the movie it yeah right and it's like that <laughs> thing hides under beds um, i am sleeping on the couch today and i'm gonna have every single light on the full blast because screw that i do not want to be <laughs> have the thing come in you know tear me inside my own mattress no yeah um and that's hard um it, it's hard nowadays now uh, we talked about this pre-show um uh noah but we talked about cabin in the woods and how it was a very traditional sort of scary movie. Then all of a sudden, the last, what, maybe 15 minutes, it yeah. kind of took an incredible plot twist. 
And I left the movie theater actually angry. <laughs> I left it angry and confused because on one side of me, I was like, oh, you know, it's somebody trying something new. Um, but it was more so like it wasn't scary. It's more like they fell into the matrix for 10, 15 seconds and let's go, what the F was that all about? Like, you know, kind of confused and just, I don't think there's just enough there to really tie the first, what, hour and 15 minutes <laughs> movie, the last 15, 10. It was just very, very bizarre, but kind of like Saw was back in the day. Yeah. Um, although I think Saw was much more successful. It's because of how they, the writing was done. Um, you know, it's just something different. I know in scary movies, there's not too many different plot lines you can throw into scary movies. So yeah, I don't know. It, it's gotta be something where you gotta catch me off guard. What about you? I'm, I'm curious as to what, how I, Mr. Noah Grant. I was about to ask, I, if you, if you had to guess, do I scare easily? I would say no. You'd be wrong. I wouldn't say no. You'd be wrong. I scare pretty easily actually. And not, not in the sense that like, um, you know, I, I think as a kid, obviously it was a little bit different. I scare in the sense that like I live alone. So I'm kind of one of those people that all watch a scary movie. I'll hang into it. I'll enjoy it. But then when I go to bed at night, I'm like, ah, not a fan. And it, it depends on what it is. Um, psychological thrillers. I think things like Gone Girl, I think as a male, especially kind of freak me out. That's not a scary movie per se, but it's more psychological. Um, I tell you what, I watched a movie once and I don't know why I found it so creepy, but it, it was a movie about the Babadook. Um, and it was mm -hmm. this, it, that things like that kind of, kind of, kind of get my heebie-jeebies up a little bit. And I know that they're not real per se, but things are like, um, watching things about like, not so much urban legends, but like folklore, like things that go back to like cultural, traditional, like native American history, things like that. Those things kind of get me on edge a little bit more. And especially, you know, when you're sleeping in a dark apartment by yourself, I think that's when I start to scare easily is that I don't know that it freaks me out so much on, on screen per se. It's, it's in my own head afterwards of what I've seen on screen, if that makes sense. So um, yes and no, but yes, I would say, I think it's fair to say that I scare easily. Um, Nick, kind of along that line though, um, we got kind of a one-two punch here. Um, you know, first of all, what monster or scary thing kind of creeps you out the most? before we talk about what makes a scary movie scary, it doesn't have to, I mean, it can be anything. I mean, my choice is, mm. is probably going to be something kind of off the wall, I would say. Um, but is, is there something that, you know, you think about, you know, a balloon from the movie it or something that kind of, kind of creeps you out every time you, you see it. Mm, I, you know, that's a great question because, you know, you talk about balloons or you talk about, you know, like when they do like a, a close up shot of a machete, because you, you kind of, you know, you symbol, it's, it's the symbolism piece, right? Yeah. I don't know if, you know, I, I don't know if there's really any like sort of symbolistic things that kind of creep me out because at least the movies that I've seen and I've seen my fair share. Um, I don't, I don't know if at least now um, it has the same effect as it used to. Um, I would say if there's anything, it's, it's more of the, the sensory type things. So for example, like, yes. um, uh, you know, it's that, walking through you know in a scene movie and all of a sudden like you have um like that can that falls down it's always it's always like some campbell's soup can or something <laughs> like that it falls, that randomly a large gust of wind only in the kitchen puts that off of the counter onto the ground or like door creaking it's kind of like that crap you know there's there's a, there's a plot twist coming the, or something the that's impending, different, right the impending doom of the impending doom yeah so um i think it's those kind of things or you know like 
and of course, you know, they always, you know, hey, the power randomly goes out. And of course, it's one house in the freaking block that it happens. It's not just the whole city, right? Um, or, uh, you know, a, a generator that starts up or a chainsaw. It's like, what in the hell? So, you know, I, I think it's those things where it's, it's sort of those sensory things that get me. And again, it kind of goes into that, you know, sort of unexpected things where, you know, it's, I mean, it kind of is in the movie sense, but in terms of actual practical reality things, I, you know, it's those things are one that creep me out the most. Cause it's like, okay, what was that? Cause you just don't yeah. know what that actually means. Whereas I think they go back to the balloon, you go back to, um, again, the, the, the mask from Michael Myers, like, you know, exactly what that is. So it's like, you know, okay. The guy had a bad face job, big deal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, and, and that, and that's fair. I mean, I think that, you know, cause those go back to the real perceptions of how we perceive the world. And you talk about how do you draw the line between the supernatural or the creepy versus, you know, the realism of making it stick. Uh, the monster scary thing that creeps me out the most. It's actually the Momo doll. I don't know if you remember those things yep. from those, the faces, ugh, I, not a fan. Um, so please don't send me those on Twitter or anything. Um, Caleb, I'm on you. I will hurt you. I can see you doing that already. Anyway, <laughs> But I think it goes back to the second question that I had. And you talked about the sensory piece. What makes a scary movie scary? What are the other pieces of the sensory that I wanted to go back to? And I actually saw it actually in my clinicals um, and seeing particular things, you know, particular, you know, actions during a surgery or that sort of thing. The sensory piece where similar to when you watch a hockey player get hit in an awkward way, we have this ability to feel somebody else's pain or perceive what that might you know, things that make you cringe when you just watch them because you're like, oh, I, that wasn't even me. And I still felt that things where, um, you know, I've seen movies where like someone drills into the top of somebody's hand that's been essentially held down at a table or they have this little drill that goes right inside, you know, the cranium and they drill in things like that that kind of gets you on edge. I don't know if that makes a scary movie, but I think, you know, particular torture scenes, if you will, I think, you know, yeah. kind of saw-esque, but not not over the top, you know, just enough to where it's like, you can see that being a realistic thing that somebody could do to somebody. But in your opinion, what makes the movie scary? Uh, I think there has to be, and, and this is the hard part, right? Because for scary movies, there's there's two ways you can go, but there's the realistic and then there's the paranormal, I think, yeah. um, slash unrealistic. Um, to give you some examples, like realistic saw, um, I could actually see if, if they had the tools at the disposal and everything, that was... Yeah. That's kind of stuff that could actually happen, right? Um, now, again, some of, you know, the way they deal with that, you know, again, goes back to the uh, the Darwin moments of human <laughs> uh, of human capabilities. But, <laughs> but you know, uh, the, the creepy thing is, you know, you, you got guys that are handcuffed to the first one, right, where they're handcuffed to pipes and, you know, you don't have really a way to get out and, you know, making the decision, right, of having to saw off your own ankle, you know, it's to, to try to get out um, kind of things. You know, I think that's the part that scares where it's like, because I think at least for me um, as a problem solver, right, you're you're in a situation where, yeah, there's only one way out of this. It's got to be done this way. Oh, God. Like, you know. have, have you ever seen the movie Seven with Brad Pitt and uh, Morgan Freeman? I, uh, I don't kind of an I older have. movie and it actually has Kevin Spacey in it too. But, um, I that think good, yeah. it, from what, from what, from what you've described, I think if you haven't seen that movie, I think check that one out. I don't, maybe you'll think it's dumb. I found that one to be obviously a good plot twist at the end, but I found that one to be a little bit of a mixture of the psychological versus what you're saying, where, where the victims had had to deal with something like that. So ju just something to pause it there. But anyway, is there any, is there anything else that makes a scary movie in your opinion, scary? 
it's got to be unpredictable. Um, yeah. That's the big thing. Um, you know, there's so many movies that are out there that you can literally go, yep, and then you see, like, the foreshadowing in just the cinematography, right, where it's like, yep, the girl's laying down. She looks back, she sees <laughs> that coming, and she's got two doors, one that everybody's yelling at her to go for, and she goes, no, nah, I'm going to take the one that everybody knows. If I go through that one, it's going to be like an Iron Maiden chest. I'm about to get squashed and have, you know, metal pegs again. I'm going to be dead in this. So, it's just, you know, it's, and, and again, it's hard. It's hard to do that in terms of plot points. So I think, you know, for me, if you can keep it, every, you know, the audience off edge and not really, you know, use, you know, those elements of film and even writing to say where it's foreshadowing, you can really kind of just almost see things happen before they do you know, the unpredictability has to be in the writing too, not just, um, you know, again, the sensory, the special effects, you know, the audio, yeah. the video. Um, you have to have a plot line that also steers away the audience as well. Yeah, you had kind of talked a little bit about uh, um, that piece too, about the unpredictability and kind of the meeting of human fate where you only have, um, you know, one option or one way out. There's a movie on Netflix and I'm, tr- and I'm trying to see if I can figure out what, what it's called, but essentially... Uh, in the movie and it's not it's it's more of an action movie but uh, i think it's just called a, um, the old guard that's what it's called and uh it, it, there's a scene in the movie where essentially it's this group of people that they're immortal for so long and, and they stay alive for however immortal they are um until they their body starts to finally fail them so it could be thousands of years whatever it is but their goal is to kind of like keep guard of the rest of society by being this immortal you know person and one of the immortals gets put in this kind of like iron casket. And what happens is when they die, they regenerate and they wake up kind of in the similar spot that they died, if you will. But what had happened was one of the women was found to be a witch that was one of these immortals and they were put in this casket and dropped in the ocean. So what happens is she had drowned, she dies and she wakes up and she continues to drown again. And she repeats the cycle because she can't ever get out of the cycle. Um, And and that's kind of what it makes me think of there, where it's like your options, you know, if you're going to die, you want a way out. You want a way to be able to control that, I guess, a little bit. So that kind of goes back to that piece too. Um, Nick, I kind of wanted to, uh, we got two more questions here that I had. Uh, This one's more of a simpler one. And I I think I know your answer this one. Um, are you convinced in real life that ghosts in the supernatural exist? Do they exist? Not no. for you? No, I no. think that I think that they do. Are you are you an alien believer too, or not really? I will use the same um, response as Neil deGrasse Tyson does. I don't think <laughs> we know the I don't think we know the answer to that yet. And yeah. you know, and I'll, can, I'll, I'll def- can I you can I you, can I use that uh, for the podcast from here on out for everything you ask me? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I can't stop you. So let's, let's put it that way. Um, but, you know, when, when we think of the word aliens, we, we often, you know, attribute that to a, a human like form that's got eyes, it's got ears that they can, there's a way of communication. They've yeah. got two arms and two legs, you know, define alien, right? Alien bacteria. I mean, I drew think <laughs> that, no, but seriously, I mean, yeah. so you, you talk about the philosophical things and I'm, I'm going to close with this. Um, I think, somewhere out there there are intelligent life forms um i don't think however they're anywhere close to us and i think it's going to be either something we discover or something where we're going to kill each we're going to kill the human race off before then because of so many things we're killing ourselves with that we'll never be able to discover that part of the universe so all right fair fair my final question for you mr maxson as we end the show i feel free to interpret this one as you want i do you believe in any conspiracy theories? And if so, which is the one that you believe that is most convincing? 
So conspiracy theories, are we talking around like Halloween kind of thing or? In general, in general. Yeah. Rarely, honestly, you know, conspiracies are that because people conspire. They don't know what the hell they're talking about and they make assumed judgments based on limited information. Um, so <laughs> not really, honestly. Um, wow. You would, just, can, can we quote that one? Wow. That was, you I, just set that one in its place and hammer right. that tank home. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Um, I do think there's something with Area 51. However, okay. I am also, I'm also not convinced that isn't it just a giant smoke screen. Okay. Honestly, because, it, well, we'll think of it this way. The U.S. The US military, um, you know, they're so good um, about safeguarding stuff. Why? And, and again, there's, you know, this giant thing that it's almost, I, I almost think we've almost fueled the smoke screen ourselves too, where, you know, yeah, there's this huge thing and there's been so many people interviews you can't talk about it. Uh, but then again, there's, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's more to the, um, the UFO thing that I think that we is being made public, yeah. but that to me isn't a conspiracy theory. I think that's just more panic um, control almost. I, I think so. Yeah. And I think, I, you know, uh, I think that's more just, yeah. Uh, you know, controlling of the masses and, you know, I don't know. We, I think it's happened enough where obviously the, you know, the U S government slash military, I, they know about it. I don't, I think they don't know enough about it where they know if they went up and spoke about it, they wouldn't have answers. And more so, again, as you mentioned, you know, if you open up that door, that door never shuts. So I think that there's something to that. Um, however, you know, what they know and what they claim to know, that's still yet to be out there. But again, that to me is not really a conspiracy theory because there's video evidence of it, both from military planes, from civilian cameras, um, yeah. about behaviors and different things that are happening. So I, I would, I'm curious about that, but again, I don't really think that falls in line with what you claim. So I'll throw it back at you. Um, what about you? Do you believe in any? And if so, why? Hey, I can't, is the ill-advised shot a conspiracy theory? It feels like one. <laughs> uh, I will defer to Brett Larson on that. <laughs> I'm on, I'm on to you, Mr. Larson. Um, I don't know that I believe in one, but I've heard of, I would say only one that, I don't know that I believe it, but I found it to be plausible at best, if that makes sense. Um, sure. It involves the JFK assassination. And no, it's not the second shooter on the grassy knoll. So shut up. Um, not happening. No. <laughs> yeah. The only interesting one that I've heard is that Lee Harvey Oswald fires the initial shot and misses, right? But they always talk about the angle of entry in which the bullets are. The conspiracy theory is that after that initial shot, the Secret Service agents who, granted, had rifles, right, that, that were there, um, that are on the back of the motorcade, the Secret Service agent hears the first shot, raises his rifle in anticipation to bring it up towards the front of the motorcade where President JFK is and then bring it around to where he's trying to figure out where the shooter is and accidentally discharges his weapon into the presidential vehicle. Um, striking striking occupants within the vehicle. I don't believe it, but I at least find it somewhat plausible. The only thing that contradicts that for me is the fact that if something like that happened, would it not be easily explained within a Secret Service, FBI, or some sort of report, um, the Warren report that would that that would come out about that? Now, no. I can I can see the U.S. government covering that sort of information up and blaming yeah. it on the deranged Russian shooter a Russian conspiracy American shooter that is Lee Harvey Oswald who for, forever will be unbeknownst to his motives because of thank you Jack Ruby you crazy son of a bitch but right 
that's the only one that I've heard that I'm kind of like, you know what, if I found a little bit more evidence, I could buy that ever so slightly, you know, and see enough information to where the U.S. government maybe keeps that one under wraps. And with Jack Ruby, we'll never know. Now, was Jack Ruby a conspirator? I don't think so. I don't buy those ones either. I think Jack Ruby was just a freaking idiot looking for his own fame, thinking he was helping the American people and essentially screwing out that process in all actuality. Nick, uh, I mean, what do you, is there any merit to this conspiracy theory? Do you think it's a little far-fetched? I think it's far-fetched because if it's all you had to do, if it really was that, all you do is claim it was a an accident, blame the gun or blame the person. Yeah. So the, the question I would have of what's the motive to cover that up? Now, my question is, because remember, you have more than one shot. Lee Harvey Oswald still could have fired in the presidential motorcade again. But where it's yep. easier to lay blame and let people believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter. But again, why don't you define it as such? Now, the I believe it's the Warren Report is what it's called, defines that, that says that Lee Harvey Oswald is the best known representation of who the shooter was. Maybe the U.S. government, maybe something like this did happen with an accidental discharge, but it's easier to say, well, we have a guy who did shoot into the presidential motorcade. He did it, right? So that's, I mean, that's the only one where- Here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. So I, I so first of all, the original weapon is still in the warehouse, if, I, if I'm, so also there's multiple weapons that the Secret Service would have all you have to do in today's days is do a ballistics test. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't, were they the same caliber? I'm guessing not, because if you have a rifle that's a sniper rifle versus, a, you know, more of a handheld kind of in between rifle, I would imagine they're different. But again, that's where it goes back to. Uh, and uh, people ask the question all the time, how much do you trust the U.S. government in their handling of the situation? You know, what facts do they feel that, are pertinent? Because you, you got to remember, this is this is November 22nd, 1962. I mean, this is not right. You know, but even so, you know, so many documentaries I've watched many documentaries on the JFK assassination. Um, you know, there seems to be, uh, you know, sort of a lot of uh, attempts by either private groups or whatnot through uh, freedom of information acts and um you know just to really and i think actually one of the documentaries was actually talking about the second shooter um because of the audio noise right if i recall is that right from the zapruder film right yeah right yep exactly and the one thing obviously especially with technology at the time was is that a second shooter or is it sound ricocheting and being reverted back off of buildings again this is a parade route um, so, you know, and here's the other thing too, if, if there is a second shooter, um, first of all, I, I think we all know that it was one shot, one kill with JFK, um, as far as one bullet hitting him, um, in the back of the head, um, this second shooter, the only thing we'd really care for him, because I think right now, at least from what we know, there wasn't a secondary entrance that would contradict that there was a second one that was there. Now, let's just say that there was one, let's give you that argument why are we really going to learn much other than maybe did they conspire or did they operate separately at this point? It's what 60 some odd years yeah. later. And that's why um, you asked the question about angle of entry. Cause the first one, if I'm not mistaken, goes through his throat. And the second one, you can visibly see on the motorcade film where his skull, the portion of his skull comes off and, and Jackie Onassis, Jackie Kennedy tries to, tries to manage that. But I, yeah. yeah, you know, but I find the JFK one, I think out of all of them, probably the most plausible or questionable where you can ask just because the, the time at which it happened. I think a lot of the ones about nine 11, I just get out of here with that. Those aren't even remotely, 
you know, no. Yeah. I, I don't get that one. I'm, I'm just saying, Nick, in terms of conspiracies, uh, you know, that also definitely changed the way presidential motorcades are handled, the way that routes are handled, Correct. the way that it was the last open aired um, motorcade that they had. Um, but in terms of conspiracies, Nick, I would say with this episode, we absolutely killed it if you want a conspiracy about that one. So, uh, yep. Nick, did, <laughs> did you have anything else that you wanted to add here for episode number 85? Kind of a kind of a kind of a unique show, to say the least. It's a unique show. But again, uh, I, I think, well, I'll close with this thought, you know. Again, you know, we talk here, you know, all aspects of hockey and there's certain things. I know we you talked about this in the open, but, you know, there's sometimes, you know, these types of shows that happen and yeah. we've always made it um, our mission to discuss the good and the ugly um, and everything in between. And again, you know, we hope that, you know, for the listeners slash the viewers that we know that there's that there's no sort of um, agenda to this. There's no sort of that we, you know, we, we want things, certain things to happen. We just want to throw out the truth. And, you know, there's a reason why also know that we waited until this report came out. We wanted to be absolutely sure that, you know, what we were relaying as facts, because in a broadcast media, there is to me, and this is not true of every other medium, unfortunately, um, we're caretakers of the truth and we take that responsibility very, very seriously. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate the folks who follow us along, who understand that, you know, yeah. you know, there's good and bad in this world and, you know, we don't, uh, we don't back down from the bad. And because ultimately we think, as you mentioned, that there's positive change that can be made from bad, um, that can lead to other things also, you know, being, uh, improved in society and sports leagues and things run, you know, even, you know, just your family and whatnot. So at the end of it, um, again, we appreciate you being along again for episode 85. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty hopefully confident, hopefully that next week it'll be a much more, I don't know if normal show is the best word, but a much more uplifting yeah. type show. Yeah, well, we definitely cover it and talk about the ugly because we talk about ourselves all the time, Nick. So yes, um, we do. with that being said, episode 85, if you didn't get a chance to listen to uh, episode 84, we had a lot of good tidbits about recapping the men's hockey weekend last weekend against the University of Wisconsin. We also had a healthy stretch interview with Caleb J. Peabody, who joined us. A great discussion. If you're looking, if you're a foodie and you're looking for some great food places in the Twin Cities, Nick Maxson and Caleb really had you covered in that one. A lot of fun in that 50-minute episode. And of course, next week, we're trying to work on a guest here, hopefully maybe getting a couple of uh, guys on the show, but we'll have to see. Um, but with that being said, for uh, Nick Maxson, I'm Noah Grant, and we will see you in the den very soon.